Friends, we're in Genesis chapter two this morning. We're gonna talk about marriage and we're gonna talk about gendered humanity, male and female. Very relevant topics for us today. And isn't it amazing that the oldest book in the Bible is still strikingly relevant to what we are talking about, thinking about, arguing about in our culture today? It is all here in the opening chapters of scripture. So I'm gonna read for us from Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is such a needed topic. These are needed things to know and learn from your word. They're also very hard and sore and traumatic subjects for many of us marriage and family and parenting and kids. and So Lord, I pray that you, your spirit would do what a sermon can't do, and that is that you would touch each of our hearts wherever we're coming from, wherever our journey has led us with marriage and family and kids and parents, and that you would uniquely, from your Bible, speak to us this morning. That's our prayer, that's what we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, friends, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about gender, we are sad to say that even while our culture is debating these things, I wouldn't say that many in our culture are looking to the church for a vision of what these things could be. I think that a long time ago, we lost the microphone and nobody's really looking to, nobody's waiting to hear, no reporters were asking me about my sermon this week. Nobody cares to hear what the church says about this. And I think there are a couple of reasons for our own doing that that's happened. It's one thing if we say what the Bible says and, and we're uh, aligned for that, but it's another thing if we inflict this on ourselves and two of the ways we inflict this on ourselves is number one, we are co-opted by the culture. So whatever the culture is telling us today, we fudge a little bit with the text and we go with the stream of culture and whatever culture says marriage is and gender is and identity is, well, well then we just say and parrot those same, same things back. I sat with a pastor recently of a very large church who was very much in this mindset and I asked him his views on sexuality and he parroted back exactly what you would hear in our culture and I asked his views on sexual identity or gender identity and he said, well, just like the culture, we're waiting to see how, how we're gonna think about this and how we're gonna articulate this and, and, and he was swept in the stream of culture 
and no one needs to ask him the church's vision of marriage and family and gender because it's exactly what the culture already thinks. But then on the other side, you would have churches who have become disgusted with that weak need approach and they have doubled down on misogyny in the church. If that's where the culture is going, if they're acquiescing to those things, well then let's double down on this and let's think about what the Bible says and let's draw out what the Bible doesn't say and enforce male power in the text and in the church. That will be our response. That will distinguish us. And for both good reasons, the culture should not listen to churches that do those two things. It's amazing if we will humbly, prayerfully open our Bibles and read the text for what it says and what it articulates and find afresh what our Bibles are actually saying about the dignity of women and the dignity of marriage. Both of those things are celebrated. Both of those things are solemn. Both of those things are wonderfully and fearfully revealed in our Bibles. And it's amazing if we will pause and hear the Bible on its own terms. So I want us to just walk through this text and see the radical counterculture dignity God gives to women and to marriage in our passage. Number one, women are co-image bearers and co-rulers of God's creation. Women are co-image bearers and co-rulers of God's creation. Now, everybody knows that Ephesians 5.22 says, wives, submit to your husbands, right? Everybody knows that that's what it says. And we jump on that text and debate that text and what that submission is going to look like and what I can get away with in the home as a husband and, and what the wife must do to serve me. Everybody knows the verse, wives, submit to your husbands. Nobody talks about the verse that just happened prior, Ephesians 5.21, where Paul says, church, submit to each other. Exact same word, church, everybody, submit to everybody, serve everybody, put others first in the entire church. Nobody talks about that. We, we rip a verse out of context and we think we know what it says, but we do harm to the text. Same thing happens in Genesis chapter 2. We look at Genesis 2, and before we can even argue about what it means to find a helper for man, let's not forget what Genesis 1 has already told us. Turn back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. However we're going to interpret chapter 2, it's got to make sense with chapter 1. Men and women are fellow image bearers of God and equal rulers of God's creation. That's pretty radical, right? That's a radical dignity to the women that did not exist in Moses' day when he was divinely writing these words. This did not exist in the ancient Near East. This is radical stuff in his day and in ours. By God's design, women will not seek dignity 
in her association with men because she already has it. It is divinely instituted and given by God and she needs no man to bear it. She has it from God himself. She does not need a man for dignity nor will women seek purpose in her association with men because she already has it. God ordained and God given to her, fill the earth, rule it, and subdue it. Now a woman's place in the world will be tied to man, much like man's place in the world will be tied to woman, but it won't be passive to a man. This is the gift of God to women from Genesis chapter one. She is a co-ruler, co-image bearer. Well, number two, women are the honored last addition in God's creation. This is a wild story. I wouldn't have written the creation story this way, but this is how God has orchestrated what he has done. The whole entire week of God's creation, all six days of creating, as we've walked through it, we've heard the refrain, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God made this, and God saw that it was good, saw that it was good. Seven times over, God saw that it was good until you get to verse 18 of chapter two, and God says, it is not good. It is not good. And that is intended for shock effect. (laughs) Wait a minute, what's going on? I thought everything was good. Everything was perfect. The God who does all that he pleases, who executes his will perfectly, who can raise a mountain and sink an ocean, he can hang a galaxy, he can fill the seas, he can populate the forest, he has declared everything good. And now all of a sudden it sure sounds like he just said, whoops, something's not right. Something's off. It's not good that a man should be alone. And then he doesn't fix it right away, but you have this big search in the animal kingdom. All the animals are brought to Adam and he shows his authority by naming the animals that are beneath him and it must have underscored the point dramatically to Adam as he watched animal after animal after animal come in front of him that he wouldn't find fellowship or companionship here in the animal kingdom. That pronouncement of not good and the failed search to find any suitable person, companion for him, and now we're approaching the evening of the sixth day, the final day of creation, it builds this suspense that we haven't yet seen in Genesis. There was no suspense in Genesis. Everything just unfolded exactly as God intended, and it means that God is up to something that is meant to surprise us. When God creates Eve, the final piece of creation falls into place. Without her, creation was incomplete. Without her, man in his role was inadequate until God made woman. She's the star on the Christmas tree. She's the last piece of the puzzle. She's the best wine saved for last. Once she arrives, all the tension goes out of the text. There's this big sigh of relief and God has done all things well in his timing. Women are honored 
as the last final point of his creation. Well, number three, women are God's helper fit for men. Women are God's helper fit for men. Now, verses 18 and 20 that repeat this don't immediately have a nice ring to them, especially if we've already come to our Bibles assuming that this is a patriarchal, misogynistic text written by men for men to enforce things of men. If we're thinking that, then we're going to be ready to misinterpret this because God says he's looking for a helper fit for man. I mean, after all, someone's got to make a man's breakfast and iron his shirts if he's going to get out there and fill the world and subdue it, right? I mean, this floor is not going to vacuum itself. We're going to need a helper fit for men. Is that what the text is saying? Is that what we're after here? Is that what God is doing? He needs an aid. He needs a water boy. He needs a helper. And let's bring that alongside so that he can be the best thing that God has designed him to be. Well, let's break down that phrase, a helper fit for him. Because if the Bible is saying that, then that's what we all have to do. And if the Bible is saying something different, then that's what we do. We don't decide, the Bible decides. What does it mean by a helper fit for him? Now, when I hear the word helper, I think of a subservient servant role. I think of someone who's going to come alongside me and and give me some aid and, and get some things done for me. Would you be surprised to hear that that word helper is used throughout the Old Testament almost only exclusively used to describe God. God as our helper. It is not fit for man to be alone. He needs God. He needs a divine helper. It's almost always used to describe God. So if you were going to just base your theology off of men and women on this text alone, and you knew that the helper was describing the woman and also describing God, you could actually make the inverse case that is the helper who's the stronger and the one who needs help that's the weaker, and women have a higher role in the marriage than the man. So a helper fit for him, that phrase fit for him literally translated is like the opposite of him. Someone to match him, someone to complement him, someone to correspond to him. The text is saying that when God creates a woman, she is not a man. They are not the same gender They are not interchangeable. The one can't become the other, nor can the one fill the other's role. She is distinct. She is one to match him. And yet she will become an indispensable partner to the man in the home and the church and the world. That's what the text is saying when it says a helper who is fit for, who is compatible with, who will correspond to a man. The last thing about women's dignity in the text is that women are made, the woman is made from man. Now this is a small point in the text, but I think it's a profound one. 
Even when Eve is created, it screams her dignity and her place in God's world. Verses 21 and 22 says that she is made from man. She's from Adam's rib. That's how God makes Eve. He takes a rib from Adam. And just to be clear to everyone, men and women, I think, all have the same amount of ribs. There's nothing in the text that says that one has more than the other. Don't go looking for that. So, so God does this with Adam, but it doesn't ever say that this happens in perpetuity. And so either God replaced his rib or Adam lived without that rib. That, that's all that happened there, okay? Don't go telling people that, that men or women have more or less ribs. But taking Eve from Adam and not from all the animals he just saw is an object lesson for Adam, right? She will be like him. They will be below the angels, but they will be above the animals. She has equal status with him in the world. She's not livestock. She didn't come from the animals that you saw. She is, as Adam says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, the great commentator Matthew Henry he gets a little flack for saying this. People say this is a little too flowery, what he, what he says about this passage. I actually think it's beautiful and profound and there's some merit to it. Take it as you will. But Henry says, Eve is made not out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think there's something there. It's not from his head. It's not from his feet. It's right from his side, near to his heart. I think God is showing us something even in the care of how he creates Eve. In all of these four ways, the text is screaming to us what the culture at his time would have not been saying, that there is a beautiful dignity for women which God endows upon them, bestows upon them, that they might be co-image bearers, co-rulers in God's creation. Now watch what happens the moment you have a man and a woman in creation. God wastes no time. Marriage is the sacred, solemn union of a world in two genders. It is the sacred, solemn union of a world in two genders. We talked about this in chapter one. To create a world and to make it in two genders is to release enormous responsibility on humanity with such massive Blessing. There's such massive blessing that can come from this arrangement, but such potential heartbreak as every single gendered human in this room has experienced some way and somehow. God wastes no time of leaving these two on their own he puts them together in a solemn bond. He joins man and woman in holy matrimony. This is the first arranged marriage. We're not dating. We're not seeing other people. Marriage happens right in the text, this beautiful union to display. This is how it's going to look if we're going to live in this world of two genders. Verse 34. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one 
flesh. Three verbs here, all related to fusing this new inseparable bond between two genders. Number one, a man will leave. He's gonna leave his father and mother. Now, if you lived in the uh, Middle Eastern culture at that time, technically it's the wife that left her house and she came to live in the husband's house. So we're not talking about physically leaving his parents. We're talking about relationally his bond with his wife will be more sure, more important, more valued the priority over what would have been his chief responsibility in his life, his relationship with his parents. And God says that now comes second and the marriage comes first. Two, he's gonna hold fast to his wife. Literally, he's going to stick to his wife. And three, they shall become one flesh. Two are as good as one. They're joined sexually, spiritually, emotionally, sharing a home and offspring together. As the late Timothy Keller would say about this sexual union, this is God's ordained way for two people to give up their independence and say mutually to each other, I belong completely and permanently to you. If we paused before any sexual act or any sexual thought and understood, biblically speaking, what Keller is saying, that this is the pronouncement I'm about to make in my desire or act, that I belong completely and permanently to you, that would shape a culture. That's what God is saying in this union. And just like Sabbath, Marriage happens at the very beginning, before the law, before the Ten Commandments, before we get into any of the Torah, the the marriage is woven into creation. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not a, uh, a Christian thing. It's a human thing. It is a building block for human society. How remarkable it could be going forward as we're discipled in our homes of what it means to be a husband and a wife and a father and a mother and a, and a son and a daughter, what, what light and what salt will be in Christian marriages to a watching world who doesn't know what this could be. That could be a, a beautiful testimony to the world. In all these ways, our passage is giving radically so Dignity to women, dignity to marriage, God putting them in front of us and saying, I value these, I've created these, they are beautifully and wonderfully made. But that's not where I'm gonna close our sermon today, just in the last couple of minutes. We've talked about the beauty, we've talked about the dignity, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say a word about the hard side of womanhood and marriage. I mean, we're watching God elevate these things before the fall, but we can't help but think ever since the fall, we've just seen the backside of gender and marriage and family, and there's so much pain and there's so much brokenness. One of the greatest joys and one of the hardest sorrows of being a pastor of this church is to know your stories and for you to share in my story and to know the brokenness that comes with a gendered 
humanity? What do we say to our singles who are desperately longing for marriage? What do we say to our widows and widowers who had and lost a marriage? What do we say to our divorced members who were once married? What do we say to a host of us for whom any talk of marriage and family brings up the pain of broken homes, single parents, infertility, abortion that is part of our past? There's a lot of pain, trauma, hurt, heartache behind what should be good, wholesome Bible words, male, female, marriage, sex, family, and kids. These are good words, but they're words that come with a world, a world of pain. I want to close with this gospel word that none of this is lost on God. None of this is lost on God. Not even you sitting, hearing a sermon of the ideal while you are wallowing in the pain of less than. Not even that is lost on God because our story, our past, our present, our future is not unknown to him. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Could it be possible that every tear, every anguish, every unfulfilled longing is met by the tender nearness of God? Can he do that and will he do it? It's wild to think that even with all the baggage around this topic, God still puts family language on himself and on the story of our salvation. God would call himself Father Jesus would call himself our husband. The church would become our family, brothers and sisters, so that the fatherless and the orphan and the abused could still say, I have a heavenly father. And the single and the widowed and the divorced could still say, I have a heavenly husband. And the lonely or the estranged could still say in Christ, I have a family, I have brothers and sisters that are stronger than blood within the church. And when we're in heaven, in glory, what was so important to us here and now, our marriage bond, Jesus says, that's gonna go away. We won't be married in heaven anymore. And we can assume that if we're not married in heaven, then we won't think about our households the same way. I'm not going to try to co-parent my kids with Julie in heaven. If we're separated, uh, there's babysitters in heaven. I won't have my children to worry about. They will be tended to. But that could mean this, that both the happiest and most fulfilled earthly family here and now and the most broken of earthly families can here and now, in this moment, experience the abiding, sustaining, daily, hourly, fulfilling of fatherly, husbandly, sibling, love of God in Christ today, tomorrow, 
and forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, speak these tender words to us. Speak them to our healthy, thriving marriages to endure and stay the course. Speak them to our failing marriages that you are present here and near to us. Speak them to our households. Speak them to our parenting. Speak them to our infertility. Speak them to our homes and our church and our city. Speak gospel words that you are near to us. Father, husband, and friend to us that you will bind us up. We look and long for you. In Jesus' name, amen.